Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Film by Numbers from Outward Film Network. We are the film podcast in which the topic of discussion is dictated by the number of the episode. We're up to episode four now. Thank you to all of you who have listened to our episodes thus far. We're on Anchor, Spotify, Apple and all the main podcast providers. Uh, My name is Phil Slatter and I'm joined by the one and only Mr. David Woods. Hi Phil, pleasure to be here. Although I struggle to get into this recording studio today. Uh, Normally there's three walls but somebody had built a fourth wall covering the way in but i broke it down and was able to join he's, in he's gone right in we are on twitter at film numbers pod yeah. and at outward fn and you can search outward on facebook instagram and our youtube channel and our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com now as dave uh, wittily alluded to this is episode number four and we are looking at the fourth wall the invisible screen that exists between the characters on the screen in film and the audience Yet many films, as we know, break that wall and have characters talking directly to the audience, even interacting with the film conventions such as editing, camera moves and linear narrative. We're going to be discussing why films do that, how it can be done well, situations where it works, situations where it doesn't work. And we will give you some recommendations of films that love to break said wall. Um, It's not a common technique and not something that you see too regularly. What was your first experience of a film that uh, you remember breaking the fourth wall, Dave? I don't actually remember but i'm thinking certainly the thing that stands out most in my memory as an earliest uh, experience of the fourth wall breaking was the mel brooks film blazing saddles and comedy is a genre that frequently breaks the fourth wall and that makes sense because it's one that exaggerates cinematic convention for comedic purposes but what makes blazing saddles so memorable is that brooks doesn't so much break the wall as completely wreck it uh, there's it's set in the wild west and these sets are thrown down exposed to show the actors interacting with the studio and Hollywood Boulevard even and I recently read Mel Brooks's autobiography All About Me which I thoroughly recommend by the way and he talks of that creative decision as anarchic which I would agree with because it does throw you out of the picture which is really unsettling but the aggression of the humour it wins you over Um, for example when Hedley Lamar, the villain played by Harvey Corman, goes to watch the movie he's starring in on the big screen and chokes on his popcorn when he sees Sheriff Bart coming to get him. So you've got that element of extreme in comedy when breaking the fourth wall. Um, but I've got to say, as a filmmaking technique, it's rarely earned. And I want to reference Ingmar Bergman's Summer with Monica here, which is a seminal film in fourth wall history because it influenced the likes of Martin Scorsese, who I think recorded in an, an introduction for the Criterion Collection re-release of the film. And the closing shots of Francois Truffaut's 400 Blows and Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, which are hugely influential films from 1960s Paris Nouvelle Vague movement. It has a very famous fourth wall moment in Someone with Monica, which I'll not spoil here, but it's famous because it doesn't feel gimmicky or inserted into the film as a glib or self-aware gesture. It's one of the very, very rare instances it feels natural. Uh, Harriet Anderson plays Monica with such this intensity that her fourth wall moment conveys the exhaustion her character feels with the life that's left her in survival mode. You know, there's no happiness, no hope there. And the impact's tremendous because you share Monica's feelings. And for me, that example taught me that breaking the fourth wall should not be taken lightly as a creative decision. Something real needs to happen within a character's soul, I suppose, for it to become more than a joke. It's interesting that you make that point because I often tend to associate the fourth wall breaking with comedy. Mm. It certainly feels to me that a significant percentage of films that break the fourth wall are in the comedy genre. I mean, my first introduction was uh, the John Hughes classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which Mm. is one of my all-time favourite films 
film I sort of grew up with, in which Ferris regularly addresses the audience and tells them what he's doing, and it flashes up on screen the ways for you to convince your parents that you're ill so you don't have to go to school. Uh, and it's not just the talking to the camera, but also he, at one point he's in the shower, and when he washes his nether regions, he holds a, holds a hand up. It's a good comic moment, something I've always associated with humour. Uh, another film that I remember was one of the first, I probably saw at the cinema that broke the fourth wall was High Fidelity, which uh, John Cusack's character regularly uh, yeah. addresses the, the audience and he gives his famous top fives that we have uh, from the, the source novel by Nick Hornby. And I remember walking out of that and my friend said, I've never seen a film like that in which a character addresses the audience. I'm like, oh, that means you haven't seen Ferris Bueller. So it, it was, it was, that was mid nineties, late nineties, but uh, it's, it's something that's been around for a while. Another film that I remember is uh, Cuffs, which starred Christian Slater, which was sort of a Beverly Hills cop style ripoff. He plays a, a down, not, not a down and out, but a guy who's a bit of a deadbeat character. Christian Slater's George Cuffs and, and his brother is uh, a police officer. And when his brother is killed, he then decides to take over his, his district. And that breaks the fourth wall. Christian Slater is quite good in giving that narrative and addressing the, the audience directly, but the film tonally is a bit uneven. It's not that well known. Um, just the film I remember, remember watching. It is something that's often used for comedic purposes, although interestingly, I wouldn't necessarily say that Ferris Bueller uh, or even high fidelity or cuffs actually do that to make a joke. It's more just about putting across that element of narrative or telling you how they're feeling inside as a character. Um, and sometimes it's done as a very brief moment, isn't it? I mean, if you think of Airplane, when Ted Stryker looks at the camera and he says, "What a pisser!" <laughs> yeah. Or uh, I even thought of Carry On Camping and Carrying Up the Kyber when right at the end, both of those films, one of the characters addresses the audience. It's quite subtle, and you don't really realise it. And it's perhaps not obviously done, um, but it's just a little fleeting moment that can be quite amusing. And then there are films that openly draw the attention to it. Uh, I remember watching Dora and the Lost City of Zed when she points to something in the corner and talks to the audience. And then within the context of the scene, her parents say to her, who, who are you talking to? And it's almost like they are aware that she's there. She's aware of the audience being there, but they're not. And it very much calls attention to its own narrative structure. And there's the great moment in Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me, when Austin does the whole thing that we all do when we watch films about time travel. He says, well, hang on, if I go back in time uh, and if I go and kill myself, then I wouldn't be able to be born to go back and kill myself. And he says, oh, no, I've gone cross-eyed. And Michael York says, I suggest you just don't worry about that sort of thing and just enjoy it. And then he looks at the audience and says, that goes for you as well. And Michael Myers looks at the audience and says, yes. And <laughs> it's, it's almost like the film saying, if you overthink this narrative concept as is the case in any time travel film then you're just going to end up tying yourself in knots um, so the film's just saying look this is a silly knockabout comedy enjoy it uh, and just go along for the ride so they, but those are just fleeting moments they're not films that do it necessarily regularly throughout um, but it is often quite funny isn't it mm. why do you think that is i think it's it's funny um because you're being invited on the joke. I suppose you could argue, do, do, if the film's funny anyway, does it really need to do that? I mean, for example, I would say I, I love the airplane breaking break the fourth wall. It, it really takes you off guard and it, it's so effectively comic. And um, 
but it's almost because it's done as a fleeting moment that's almost why you laugh you're almost like oh hey, yeah is he talking to me i then? didn't see it. yeah it catches you off guard yeah i mean one more recent film that does it regularly was was deadpool and i actually found that as a superhero film, it was it was okay, it was fine. But I, I found the fourth wall breaking within that was the stuff that I really enjoyed. That was those are the parts of Deadpool that I liked. The rest of it, not so not too fast. I mean, fairly ambivalent about these million superhero films and TV shows that we're getting at the minute. And that may be my own cynicism coming into that. But I did think that that handled the, the fourth wall breaking quite well. Do you think that? narrative techniques such as sub- subtitles and voiceover can necessarily constitute breaking the fourth wall because we're talking here about actor or characters that look at the audience or look at where the audience will be and addresses them directly but with things like voiceover and, uh, and subtitles do they count in a um i would actually say voiceovers ways? yes um because it's a direct a conversation with the audience they're talking directly to the audience like an omniscient narrator in a novel i think subtitles is quite interesting because i don't know if the intention is there to break the the fourth wall necessarily it's it's often um to to provide um that compensation if you like if if um um you know and um, we can't speak the language or um you can't hear the words for example um but also they they are speaking directly to the audience and you could you could look at it that if it's a translation of a foreign language that's speaking directly to the audience who's foreign to that that particular film's film's language so that reveals a meaning that wouldn't be evident with that um within the screen story so um it's an awareness still that there's an audience to play to i suppose we have that great quote from bong jin ho and he called it the one inch barrier of subtitles trying to get over them but <laughs> i think you know you can't watch a foreign language film if you don't speak that language without the subtitle so it is there to so you can understand what's going on and what the characters are saying but then films can use it as a comedy tool or a way of saying a character says one thing think of that great scene in annie hall think of lockstock where they're saying one thing but the subtitles come up underneath and they're saying something completely different so to me that is a deliberate attempt by the filmmaker to break the fourth wall and put something across to the audience rather than it being there as a necessity so we can understand what's happening. Yeah, and with Annie Hall, um, of course, there is direct breaking of the fourth wall speaking directly to the audience through the character of Elvie Singer. But yeah, you've also got that um, alternative breaking with, with the comedic subtitles. And the idea of voiceover, I mean, it's something that you wouldn't have in the theater. I mean, you need to think of this as, Know, traditional cinema as an extension of the theatre, certainly originally, uh, and you wouldn't have had voiceover. You might have had mm. someone looking at the audience and addressing them directly. Mm. Perhaps in that's the way it's the incorporated yeah. the novel, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and then in certain sort of Shakespeare plays, you have a narrator who will be there to mm. deliberately talk to the audience. That's a form of, of voiceover, yeah. I suppose. The use of soliloquy as well. Absolutely. And uh, think of the assassination of Jesse James by the cow, Robert Ford, when there's uh, a narrative, a voiceover narrative, but we don't know who this narrator is. We never told who it is. It's just a voiceover. And then it's almost for the audience's ears only. Yeah. But then you can contrast that with something like Goodfellas, where we have voiceover narrative right until the end. And then it switches. And then Henry Hill, rest in peace, Ray Liotta, just got to say that. Henry Hill stands up. Uh, and walks through the 
courtroom and then says about how great it was being a wise guy and now it's, he's lost it all. Yeah, and um, Goodfellas also borrows directly from um, a very early example of breaking the fourth wall, and that's from 1903's the silent film, The Great Train Robbery. Um, of course, there's the cowboy who I think was played by an actor called Justice D. Barnes shooting at the audience directly, and that's replicated with Joe Pesci's Tommy DeVito um, firing down the camera. And of course, we can have voiceover that comments on the on-screen action. And I'm thinking of, you know, The Wolf of Wall Street, American Beauty, where they're saying this is what happened, this is this person, this is that person, rather than just relaying the narrative uh, and again, another form of voiceover can be when the narrator is very much there on screen. If you think of Stand By Me, which is all sort of told in flashback, and I suppose other Stephen King versions as well, is often a writer, but in Stand By Me, it is this person relaying his story. Then at the end, you see him typing up the story. So it's all, he's not directly looking at the audience and saying, this is what's happening, but we see him there and we see him writing the book and then we hear it. So it is kind of, addressing that audience directly like we say in the same way that a first person novel would do so again mm. cinema being another medium of, of, of drama uh, can breaking the fourth wall ever be classified as postmodern, uh, or in what context can it be postmodern? i think it'd be difficult at this point in time to say that um uh, for example uh, the the, the uh, for me it's just quite a novelistic technique so from that point of view, it's heavily borrowed from another art form and therefore it's epistemic. But there might well be instances that we're yet to see where it's going to be postmodern. I mean, we, you, you referred to Stand By Me. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at breaking the fourth wall. You could conceive of that in a, in a sense as postmodern because it, it isn't... It isn't an obvious thing. The film is staying within the screen story, but it's almost talking to the audience out of the back of its head, which is quite an interesting approach. It's almost like it depends on what the joke is and what the gag is. Uh, and if you think of Scream, um, mm. which is obviously very postmodern, and there's that great bit in line of dialogue in Scream when she goes, this isn't a movie, this is real life. Of course, you're watching it, you go, well, no, it's a movie. And then that gets parodied in Scary Movie. And she says, this isn't a movie, this is real life. And, and maybe says, that's the point, you know, the next, the postmodern fourth wall break is going to be when perhaps we can get more immersive with cinema and yeah. virtual but reality it, gets more involved. The scary, well, absolutely. The scary movie line goes, no, no, this is a movie. Look, there's the camera, there's the script supervisor. Mm. And it's it's a gag. Uh, and it's it kind of like you're, you're getting really tied up in knots in terms of just how meta these things are becoming. Mm. And then, of course, you watch like you know, Scream when it's filmed within a film within a film within a film and then there's things like we, we spoke about Mel Brooks before but Robin Hood Men in Tights when Robin loses the uh, archery contest so they all get the script out and hang on Robin's not supposed to lose so they all look at their script and go, hang on I've got another shot so again that's drawing attention to itself and being aware of its own conventions similarly with Monty Python the song always looking on the bright side of life contains the line this record's available in the foyer afterwards and then another film that has voiceover briefly is uh, Adaptation, in which Robert McKee, played by Brian Cox, he actually interrupts a voiceover. He's giving a screenwriting lecture and he interrupts a voiceover to say, God help you if you ever use voiceover, my friend. And it's uh, while uh, the Nicholas Cage yeah, character is share that. voiceover <laughs> and it just sort of cuts right in. So is, is he right? I mean, can it ever be a 
easy way of conveying emotion and exposure uh, and exposition. Yes, I think so. I'm rarely convinced by voiceover myself. I mentioned about it being a novelistic technique, and this is where film sometimes isn't brave enough to allow its own visual language to explore characters, you know, feelings, desires, motivations, and perhaps even sensory environments of cities, the country, forests, you know, mountains, whatever it is. Um, that being said, uh, Woody Allen always manages to make his voiceovers relevant. We talked about Annie Hall, and this seems to be validated by the extreme neuroticism of his lead characters who give you the impression of needing to agitate every passing thought. And I think the French director, Eric Roma, did this with his uh, films back in the, uh, oh, I think it was 60s and 70s. Um, you know, it's, it's filmmakers should consider whether their particular work motivates an inner monologue uh, through voiceover or if they're simply looking for easy solutions. I mean, we, we sort of joked about on the films we've made, we've joked about on set about how we can convey exposition as to why certain things are like they are. You know, hang on, we're just chucking this clunky line of dialogue to explain something away. And we, we sort of made a, made a bit of a laugh about it, but something yeah. we don't need. But I mean, I have one of my pet hates in cinema is they often say about, you know, show don't tell, which is, of course, the whole point of it. But it's when there's a towering shot of somewhere like London, and you can see the Big Ben Clock Tower and the London Iron Tower Bridge, and then a caption will come and it'll say London, England. And I think, why <laughs> have you put that there? What I mean, It's so obvious. It, if, uh, if you don't yeah. know that that's London, England, then what 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 are you doing? And you contrast that with something like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Thomas Alfredson's version, when it's just they're in Hungary and then suddenly they just cut and there's a route master bus, just a visual signifier goes past, okay, yeah. we're in London. Trust Same the audience, the, trust yeah. their intelligence. Mm. And I mean, we know that Oliver Stone's World Trade Center, or in my opinion, I say Oliver Stone's World Trade Center is very overblown. Um, you know, you're watching a film called World Trade Center and there's a lingering shot of you know, the Twin Towers and then it comes up the date and on the screen it says September 11th, 2001. And you just think, but who, obviously, but even if you didn't know that, you could explain it away with a line of dialogue. You don't need to be that obvious. You don't need to ram it down the audience's throat. And it's something that uh, Quentin Tarantino has done, certainly recently, did it in Inglorious Bastards and then in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when he has a character in a scene and he will label them and something will flash up on screen saying who this person is, saying this is Roman Polanski or Roman Polanski with an arrow pointing to him. And I just think, why are you doing that? That's, that's lazy. Just either explain it away with a bit of dialogue. One or... of the many annoying things about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, we're not. We're, we haven't got time to really go into that. But um, absolutely, <laughs> no. But I do think that you know why why do that and or let the audience work it out for themselves. Or don't maybe don't even say that it's that character, and then maybe some people won't know, and then they might look into it further later on down the line. It's mm. that it, it's breaking the fourth wall to deliberately ram it down the audience's throat. It's like telling people how you're feeling. From now, you'll be standing around a posh cocktail party congratulating yourself on how you spent an entire weekend locked in a room with an asshole from Hollywood for your art. I am pathetic. I am a loser. So, what is the substance of writing? I have failed. I am panicked. First, I have sold out. I am worthless. Last, I, uh, what the fuck am I doing here? 
What the fuck am I doing here? Fuck! It is my weakness, my ultimate lack of conviction that brings me here. Easy answers, rules to shortcut yourself to success. And here I am, because my jaunt into the abyss brought me nothing. Well, isn't that just the risk one takes for attempting something new? I should leave here right now. I'll start over. I need to face this project head on and... and God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. Any idiot can write voiceover narration to explain the thoughts of a character. Okay, that's it. One hour. Is Breaking the Fourth Wall something you've ever been tempted to do in a film you've made? Or have you ever had an idea of writing a film like that? Uh, no, in all honesty. Um, after Summer with Monica, I realised what it takes, and it's hard to imagine finding a scenario where I'd personally feel confident that it would truly belong um maybe as a way to explain this better is if you think of alejandro gonzalez in the revenant um you know it's this grueling epic that inflicts tragedy mutilation existential despair on the main character of hugh glass and it concludes with glass looking directly into the camera as the final shot and you could say this is earned to a degree because he he, he needs to reach out he's at, he's at the edge of his capabilities but i think it's an overreach and i i think it's because of the setting it's it's the wilderness the frontier the edge of humanity there's no one there to connect with so glass can look for someone but there's no one to look back so maybe an almost look to camera just off perhaps would have worked better and i think of um a similar kind of setting i suppose in andre de tot's day of the outlaw where it's it's not used you know it doesn't reach in that sense it's just the whole environment just does the work for the filmmaker effectively this suffocating environment of snow and isolation so the revenant's a terrific film but for me that wasn't i felt totally earned and it, it just, about, that kind of thing makes me cautious on that subject what about the almost final shot of psycho because I'd never even considered that that was a shot that breaks the fourth wall when Anthony Perkins looks up and has a little smile. And he's, I, I never considered that as something as looking directly at the audience, even though he is. And then researching for this, it was described as, as something that did. I thought, well, yeah, it, it does break the fourth wall because he's, who else is he looking at? He's looking directly down the camera. Mm. Uh, is that earned? No, I don't think so. And that's, you know, that's how I, how difficult I think it is to pull it off. It doesn't hurt Psycho in the way that I I, I really like the Revenant it's, as it's well. A, it's it's, it's a, a really it's good, a good film. shot though, isn't it? I mean, it's a good like, shot. Is um, as chilling. is you know, as is the shot of glass in um, the Revenant. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the shots themselves, but I just think is it totally? It is. I, I I just think I think because I've seen this moment in that has been so definitive for film history i think i find it very difficult to really buy into it and i've seen it used very badly um i think it might have been a horror film called wildwood it might have been i think aiden gillen's in it and they use it at the end and it's just completely not earned and <laughs> um you know it feels like a real clang so i think it is something to be very cautious about um but yeah obviously i'm happy to hear contrary opinions but in a way, with, with this sort of fourth wall breaking, is there are films that are obviously very deliberately do it. I'm going to write this character that's going to look at the camera and he's going to say this, or I'm going to write this voiceover. But then there are other films that sort of play within the confines of their own narrative to break that 
um, break that structure and break that fourth wall. And two films I'm thinking of that we we have worked on, both made under the Outward Network. One was called This Is How, in which a student film crew has been interviewed is interviewing a man who wants to take his own life. It's a, sort of a, a dark comedy, uh, and part of that is we have the booming shot, we have the crew talking to one another behind the camera as part of the, the narrative. We never actually see the film that is being made. We just see the main master shot. It's a one-shot film, and that was ended up being screened at the Prince Charles film, uh, Prince Charles Theatre in Leicester Square. And another film is uh, Chloe Daly, which was a film we made in lockdown about YouTubers. Does that constitute a breaking of the fourth wall? Because it's a YouTuber making her own YouTube film, but within the context of the film, is that breaking the fourth wall or is it just the context of, it's hard to explain, but with, because it's a YouTube film within a film. I mean, I'm not explaining it very well, but what do you think about those and the way they break the fourth wall? Well, I, I don't think personally, this is how it really does, because you're still filming a uh, artificial environment, even though there's the idea that, you know, it, it, the, the film crew are on set. They are part of a story mm. and there's no direct breaking there's a story the within a story set. there is a barrier there even though it is there is an illusion that the, the, the fourth wall is coming down um so i would say no um on that one i think i think obviously chloe daly and i well maybe not obviously but um i think chloe daly does and i think does it really well i think um matt who wrote and directed it i think um it was it was earned in that sense because uh, and this is why I admire it, because it's not something I feel I personally could do as a filmmaker and pull off. Certainly haven't found the right material. And I think Matt really did find the right material for Chloe Daly because it's all about that social media obsession and um, the desperate engagement, the want of the audience. Please engage with me. Please like me. Please validate me. It's actually important to break the fourth wall. As And it's it's actually the story is breaking the fourth wall in that sense. But I suppose the way that it was filmed, the, the most of the shots you see are the YouTube shot. It's not like we've set up a second camera mm. to film her filming herself within that context. Yeah, and so, you could also argue she's not actually talking to us, the audience. She's being filmed by her boss to do these this series of videos that are going to be put out there. So there's yeah. actually no one she's talking to, even though she's looking directly at the camera. If you do want to watch it, great performance from uh, Laura Lemon, uh, nominated Absolutely. for the Midlands Movie Award for Best Actress. That's available on our YouTube channel. Moving on from sort of narrative in terms of the characters, what about the films that not only play with their own structure? I think of a film like Vice, where the credits roll halfway through, or Funny Games, Michael Haneke's Funny Games, where the film is rewound, or Fight Club, where... We talk about the cigarettes and the, the, the penis on the screen at the end that we've been told is going to happen. Is that sort of a very unusual way of playing with the fourth wall, rewinding something, so fast forwarding it even to get to a more interesting part, isn't it? Mm. I mean, out of those films, I'd say Fight Club's the most successful because the whole world it lives within an unhinged character who can't tell what's real and what's not. He can talk to the audience because it's absurd as talking to Tyler Durden, who doesn't exist. I <laughs> um, hope that's not a spoiler. spoiler. I probably isn't at this point. Yeah. Um, Vice, I'm kind of on the fence with because I did enjoy it, but I, I do think it is too self-conscious and it falls into that trap that I'm wary of, of being glib and too self-aware. And I think it 
it almost over celebrates itself by doing that but it, it is it is it is quite clever and it is amusing um and funny games is an interesting one because the film is so intense it's one of the most intense viewing experiences i've ever had i remember watching it with my mouth open the first time just all the way through just stunned by the intensity and sense of evil that that leads to that fourth wall break because it's you know putting to the audience you need to be asked if exploitation is really what we want to see and if we desire it what does that say about us but i think you could also argue that funny games is such a genuinely shocking film it perfectly asks those questions anyway without needing that explicit break of the fourth wall so there's definitely a um, an argument to be made on either side there but an unforgettable viewing experience and brilliantly crafted by Haneke. Listen, we're going to make a bet now, okay? Come on, hurry up. It's Sit dark. down. It's dark in here. Come on, don't fall asleep. Okay, we bet. What time is it? 8.40. That in, let's say, 12 hours, all three of you are going to be kaput. Okay? You bet that you'll be alive tomorrow at 9 o'clock, and we bet that you'll be dead. Okay? They don't want to bet. Well, it's not an option. There has to be a bet. I mean, what do you think? You think they stand a chance? You're on their side, aren't you? Who are you betting on, hmm? But, wait, what kind of bet is this? If they're dead, they can't live up to their side. And if they win, they can't live either. Yes, they'll lose either way. That's what I'm saying. I would perhaps contrast that to a history of violence, David Cronenberg's film. I think, is it, am I yeah. right thinking that's a film you're not a big fan of? Uh, no, not a mass. I'm a big fan of David Cronenberg. It's not one of my favourites, though. Yeah, I mean, what I found in, in that film is there's the Viggo Mortensen's son who is being bullied by a kid at school, but not a bad way, just sort of winds him up and calls him a few names. And then as, as violence escalates through the family, his son beats this bully up. And it beats him to a pulp and you're like punching the air going, yeah, brilliant. That's fantastic. Well done. He deserved that. And then the film takes a step back within itself. And Viggo Mortensen says, why did you do that to him? He says, well, he's, he's been, a, been a jerk. Well, what, do you, what do you mean he's been, been a jerk? Well, he, you know, he called me names. He's not been very nice to me. Like, well, hang on a minute. You put this guy in hospital and it's almost like the film is addressing your reaction to the violence because you were sort of, as a viewer, really pleased. Yeah, he got, he got, he got that, that was coming to him. And then the film says, well, was it? And did you really condone the violence? And that does it without breaking the fourth wall, I found, in a, in a more subtle way. So, yes, again, that, agreed. That, that taps back into your uh, argument with, with mm. funny games. And Did it really need to sort of stop and look at the audience and say, are you enjoying Absolutely. this? Yeah. But then rewinding its own story to, to get the shotgun and to stop, or to stop the other people getting the shotgun is, is just a genius idea, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very clever. It is. I mean, one other area that we can look into is found footage. Does that break the fourth wall? I mean, we, we talked a bit about, as we said, Chloe Daly being a sort of a YouTube film. Does found footage break the fourth wall? Often what we're watching is in the head of the character if they're holding the, the camera themselves in the lights of obviously the Blair Witch Project. Mm. But is that the fourth wall or is there a wall between us and the viewer because we're not actually in the 
immersive experience. We're not actually in danger in the way that another character, the character that's holding the camera is. So is yeah. there almost a fifth wall there? Yeah, um, I think fifth wall could be a good way to talk about found footage. I certainly don't think, as you would traditionally define it, it's fourth wall breaking because the camera is a character. And, you know, you mentioned Blair Witch, which is an example of um, a character in the film holding the camera, therefore holding the image. It's also similar in Diary of the Dead, George A. Romero's uh, zombie sequel that that again has a character holding the camera. Um, So it's not the audience per se, but we are playing really the role of that character we are and it's it's more that it's successful because it captures the imagination by tapping into that raw emotion of being exposed front on to whatever's occurring usually horror before you so there's a real psychological play um you you know you could look at perhaps on the other end of the found footage scale, Wreck, uh, the Spanish film, which is a pretty much a full frontal zombie assault. So it's a bit like being in a video game, a first-person shooter almost. But then you've got the memorable attic sequence, which is... Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah really, re- you really do forget that there's a character holding a camera. <laughs> it does feel like you. And of course, that reminds me of... Jonathan Demi's Silence of the Lambs, which also employs that brilliant found footage style sequence when Clary Starling's hunting down Buffalo Bill and she's, you know, he's got the night vision goggles on. And it's it, it, the found footage is that hunt directly for what makes us feel most uncomfortable, exposed and vulnerable. I suppose it can depend on how it's framed within the context of the film. Uh, because if you think of uh, Host, the, the lockdown horror, which is just one long Zoom call, we're not participating in the zoom call and we wouldn't be able to watch that zoom call unless we were in it so there exists that barrier but if you contrast that with paranormal activity which the idea is as it's presented the police have found this footage and have now released it so you're watching it in the same context that they're watching it in some respects there is a fourth wall breaking there you're you're being invited in a little bit more it just depends on how it's framed i guess yeah, I mean, host I haven't seen. Um, Worth so, watching. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I yeah, you, you've uh, recommended it to me a couple of times, so I think I need to get on with it, clearly. <laughs> We'd always like to end these podcasts with a few recommendations of films that have broken the fourth wall in this case. Uh, so we'll start with you, Dave. What was your, your first of the three recommendations for a film that does just that? So my first pick is a story of juvenile delinquents uh, that's honest in its uncompromising view of teenagers living on the poverty line. It doesn't sentimentalise or look for easy conclusions for the reason behind their behaviour. And this would be the surrealist filmmaker Louis Bunuel's 1950 film Los Olvidados, which translates, I think, as The Young and the Damned or something along those lines. Um, And this world is a world where... Adults and children are both manipulative, violent, lacking in moral clarity. And it has an astonishing, for me, break of the fourth wall that rivals Summer with Monica, which also encapsulates Bunuel's message in that society oppresses the free spirit and a drive for control. One of the delinquents, he's got all this frustration, it's treatment by society, by other by, by adults. He hurls an egg into the camera lens, directly into the camera lens, and this effectively covers the audience in yolk and albumin, and we feel directly attacked, and it makes you go, oh, our role 
we're also playing this complicit role in restricting the freedom of, of um, the next generation of young people. Um, and of, as I mentioned, Benuel was a renowned surrealist, but Los Olvidados is quite realist in a lot of ways, but it uses surrealism such as this incredible moment and inspired use of breaking the fourth wall to punctuate the story. Excellent. My uh, first recommendation we've mentioned uh, earlier, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, a comedy classic, a John Hughes' tale of one man's struggle to take it easy. It's fun entertainment, but it also packs in good life lessons about life moving fast and the need to slow down and appreciate it. Something that's uh, even more relevant nowadays, and I think it was back then with all sort of social media and the digital age really coming at us. Bueller shouldn't really be a likable character. I mean, if you think he coaxes his friend to taking his dad's prized car, he ditches school. He gets his girlfriend to ditch school. He lies to his parents. He deceives his principal. And that principal, as unlikable as he is, he's just trying to do his job and stop someone from skiving off school and setting a bad example to other, other kids. But Broderick makes him, uh, Matthew Broderick makes him a likable within the fourth wall breaking, turning him into a friend to all. So if you're watching it, he's got life lessons. He's got things that he's telling you that you can relate to. Uh, and that is, I think, he uses the fourth wall extremely well to to bring you into that because you're a friend to his, much like many of the characters within the film, as opposed to someone that's just watching and judging him. And there is also an interesting theory about how Ferris doesn't actually exist. Is he a manifestation of Cameron who creates something he wants to be? And the film even suggests that Cameron and uh, Sloan, uh, who's uh, Ferris's girlfriend, might actually be a more suited couple. And I even thought while I was writing this, it could be likened to Fight Club. If you think of Ferris as the Tyler Durden character and Sloan as Marla Singer and Cameron as the narrator, that sort of structure exists within that. And it may seem on the surface to be quite superfluous and just quite fun and the sort of film that you have to watch when you're in school um, and certainly have to watch when you have a day off. But there could be layers to it and you can really dive into that. Uh, it's an odd comparison, but... Um, it's certainly one that makes sense when you when you sort of really think about it. And initially, like Fight Club and Ferris Bueller, they don't match up, but then you know, both break the fourth wall and both have that three-character structure. Um, so, yeah, that's my sec- first recommendation, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I love that interpretation. Well, that's great. You never watch either film in the same way again. <laughs> exactly. Um, so my second pick is actually a film I came across recently, and it, really blew me away how effective it was at breaking the fourth wall. And it's a film from 1969 called The Cremator by uh, the Czech New Wave filmmaker Juraj Hertz. Uh, and the main character is called Carol Kopfrick-Ingle, played, I'm going to, I apologise for just mangling Czech and Slovakian names here, but um, Rudolf Frasinski, I'm going to go for. Um, and Kopfrick-Ingle is a, he's a, well, he, he manages a crematorium. He's um, he invites the audience into his dark philosophy on death relieving earthly suffering, and this becomes more sinister because he's appropriating Buddhist beliefs. But it's all on the cusp of Germany invading Czechoslovakia in 1939, and what Hertz does is show through the breaking of the fourth or the soliciting of the audience, you're part of this society that's starting to embrace Nazism. So this is an experimental wild ride that keeps you very close. And it just makes the unleashing of the horror of the final act and the truly horrendous things that Kopfra Kingle proves capable of doing. Um, It just reveals how it's just far too easy and too believable for a society to embrace extremism under the guise of protecting national values as they're perceived. And I think this is something that doesn't ever stop being relevant. 
Very interesting second choice there. And it's it's always interesting how far back some of these fourth wall breaking go because it's something you sort of feel is a slightly more modern technique. Um, but, you know, when yeah, you but I mean, the history you know, of cinema, it goes back a long way. Maybe it's more common nowadays. Um, I don't there know. More I think, I think a lot of silent films um, yeah. broke the fourth wall. You, you know, I mentioned The Great Train Robbery earlier. Um, and, yeah, I'm sure there's many others. I think even maybe the... You could even maybe argue the first film ever made um, did it, but um, yeah, that's. Could, could you argue maybe... that silent films, when they had their not subtitles but dialogue on screen, was that breaking the fourth wall? Or... Exactly. Then you're getting to the realms of does dialogue break the fourth wall, and you get into the idea of diegetics and all that sort of thing. So maybe not. Maybe it's a bit too bit too layered. But uh, <laughs> my second my second recommendation second recommendation I should say is Jean Pierre Jeunet's 2001 film Amelie. Uh, which is one of the first foreign language films I ever saw at the cinema. I think that, thinking back, I think the first was actually Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and this was um, shortly afterwards. It got quite a wide release at cinema, something that maybe foreign language films don't get uh, anymore. Obviously, we've seen the likes of Parasite, but um, they're perhaps a bit more thinly spread, but more accessible these days. It, it was released in multiplexes. I remember seeing it at a, at a multiplex there. Anyway, it's a wonderful fantasy comedy film about a young French girl called Amélie, played by Audrey Tattoo who spends her time trying to make the world better for those around her. On the surface, it seems quite whimsical, and there are, but there are some really dark elements to it. Amelie's mother is killed by someone committing suicide early on, and her father shows her very little affection as a child. Uh, it's ultimately a film about the small, simple pleasures in life. Uh, the voiceover narration tells of the character's likes and dislikes, such as the cracking of the top of a creme brulee or running your hand through some grain. Uh, the death of Princess Diana plays out in the background, which should give it a somber undertone, but that becomes secondary to the small uplifting narratives that exist within the story. It helps that it's very funny, uh, and as you would expect from Jean-Pierre Jeunet, you know, it looks absolutely gorgeous. The fourth wall breaking it is used quite sparingly. Uh, something when I rewatched it, I was expecting more of it, but uh, it happens a lot at the beginning and then phases out and comes back a little bit throughout. But it's done to good effect, and one of the funniest moments is when Emily counts the number of people having an orgasm on a Sunday afternoon. It's a hilarious montage that has not one but two punchlines at the end. So my second recommendation, if you haven't seen it, it was massively successful when it came out, but it's well worth um, watching if you want a bit of a lift. Uh, Jean-Pierre Genet's Amélie. Yeah, I forgot what a tactile film it is almost. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's, all the, it's the little details as well. It's not about, mm. if you think it's a wonderful life, it's about how, wonder, how wonderful life is, as it says in the title. With Amelie, it's, it's all about the little things. It's not about the big things. It's not about family and finding love and, and things like that and you know, making millions of pounds. It's just about the, the, the day-to-day, very simple, enjoyable pleasures and dislikes as well, because there are some very funny scenes about the things that she doesn't like uh, as much as there are things about uh, the things that she does. What's your third recommendation? I think if there was ever a director who earned the title of controversial filmmaker, it would be Gaspar Noe, who uh, helms my third choice. Um, Anyone who's seen Noe films would know his films are hardcore endurance challenges, and this is not an exaggeration. I do believe he's a filmmaker of real quality and unique vision. Um, I think he really thoroughly comprehends the perspective of the camera. He understands the relationship between the script serving the screen, and he's so fine-tuned to the audio-visual stimulus. He knows how to marry music with the image, go against it when it's appropriate. So my third choice is the 2009 film Enter the Void. It's this 
weird combination of sensitivity and extremism <laughs> that, yeah. that possibly leads to only Noe would choose to break the fourth wall by thrusting a penis into the camera lens um, using it as a deliberately shocking device to capture uh, the main character's called Oscar and he's a drug dealer who's been killed in a drug bust and he wanders Tokyo in this psychedelic death state and this literal shafting of the screen reminds the audience through Oscar of their complete powerlessness against the forces of the universe. You know, we're drifting matter as much at the mercy of other people's whims and decisions as our own. Um, to put it another way, we're capable of being fucked as much as we're capable of fucking someone else over. So you can see a real nihilist philosophy in this film, but um, it, it is, it is shocking. It's, um, it is impactful i think we can safely say that but i i I think it's earned and i think um noe's boldness is rewarded by the film's other areas where there is quite a surprising tenderness and sensory um uh, sensory depth Jean-Pierre Genet's uplifting Emily to the work of Gaspar Noe we're nothing if not versatile are we (laughs) Maybe watch, uh, maybe watch Amelie second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Depending but on my, major, uh, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. It was reminded <laughs> me of when I watched Richard Curtis' About Time on a Thursday, and it was just the film I needed to watch oh. because on the Tuesday and the Wednesday... I'd was it more disturbing quite... than Enter the Void? No, <laughs> no on, the, on, on the Thursday I watched About Time, but on the Tuesday and the Wednesday I watched both parts of Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac. Ah, excellent. That yeah. was just kind of like I really need... Really needed something sort of light and frothy, and well, after Richard Curtis, yeah, <laughs> boom, boom. Um, so yeah, there's a whole other debate watching a film at the right time, isn't it? In the mood, you're oh, in. yeah, that's a that's a good topic. My uh, third and final recommendation is Kiss Kiss Bang Black, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, even uh, which was Shane Black's directorial debut. Shane Black obviously wrote the Lethal Weapon films and was later gone on to direct uh, Iron Man 3, amongst other films. It's a very funny postmodern noir built around two central performances from individuals whose stock was quite low in Hollywood at the time it was made. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. in pre-Iron Man days plays a criminal who, via a brilliant postmodern sequence, ends up as an actor in Hollywood who teams up with a private investigator, Gay Paddy, played by Val Kilmer to tutor him for a role in the film. And they get involved in a very convoluted plot involving a lot of deaths. The title of the book, the film's based on his bodies are where you find them. And there's some brilliant fourth wall breaking, including scenes that actually describe themselves as bad storytelling and the narrative actually being stopped and rewound and paused at certain points. And there's a great chemistry between the two leads. You know, Val Kilmer's got his critics, but he's terrific in this. Uh, there's some very sharp dialogue looking back. Uh, there's some insights into the way Hollywood turns a blind eye to sexual abuse. And this was way before the Me Too movement as well. So watching it retrospectively, you think, crikey, this was telling us something that we didn't perhaps realise at the time, which now is very obvious. And it wasn't a huge commercial success, despite having some very strong reviews, but it's uh, well worth seeking out. And that's, once again, uh, Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Wasn't Shane Black in Predator as well? I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because he directed The Predator, and I think he wasn't original. Anyway, yeah. uh, uh, that, that was a little a side note, a little bit of trivia there. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Predator, I don't think, was, wasn't his finest hour. But, um, I enjoyed Iron Man 3, actually. I think that was, that was one, that, one he did as well. Obviously, having teamed up with Robert Downey Jr., who's now a sort of megastar, thanks to the Avengers films. Um, but when he made Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was 
not a nobody, but like Val Kilmer was had quite low. A bit more of a character actor, wasn't he? Sort of around yeah. that time, I think. I think that brings us nicely to the end of episode four of uh, Film by Numbers. Um, thank you for downloading. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed. As I said, we're on Twitter at Film Numbers Pod and out, at Outward FN. I'm on at Phil underscore Slatter. And you can search Outward on Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. And our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback and ideas um, you have for any future episodes linked to a number. So do let us know your suggestions as it goes episode five is next up so keep an eye on our social media feeds and we'll be providing some teasers and some information as to what we will be discussing but if you've got any ideas as i said for future numbers then do please just drop us a line thank you very much for for downloading listening it's very much appreciated and we hope you enjoy uh, and it's goodbye from me yeah, thanks very much for listening everyone and goodbye from me too Try